0: What is Marxism-Leninism-Maoism? The Key Theoretical Content and Concepts By, the Revolutionary Maoist Coalition, Chicago. With edits and expansions from For the People, Chicago. Edited for listening by the Zine Reader Collective Forward, this document was sent to me in its original form about a month ago and immediately piqued my interest as a potential zine to be used in the training of aspiring communists everywhere, as very few such documents exist that can adequately cover all points of our very complex, Very layered ideology in a way that is both easily understood and widely accessible to the broad masses. The MLM basic course from the CPI, Maoist, remains an excellent choice, as it delves much deeper into the history of most of the concepts discussed in this document, and the key role the dialectical process between material and ideological struggle had in producing the universal aspects of MLM. However, that particular book is still widely considered too lengthy and dense for those who are beginners and are simply pondering the question what is Marxism Leninism Maoism? Or MLM. In my many discussions with comrades on how to produce a better and more impactful candidacy program, it was widely agreed that information must be condensed, streamlined, and made more widely available to the masses. Initial political education must center the current needs of the current struggle, and come in an easily understood do this, not that format. When I received a work in progress version of this text, I knew its final edit would be exactly what we were looking for, and exactly what would be needed within the emerging Maoist movement in the so called United States which is why it has been a profound honor in having a direct role in producing the final edit of this very reading. While the original I had started with certainly touched on all the major points and was not missing anything per se, I found it necessary to go back and make minor word changes to various portions, and, more substantially, make expansions on the definitions and explanations on many terms discussed here. The real contribution of my edits to this text is the laymanization of many of its portions. While the raw definitions and direct quotes provide all the information necessary, I still found it necessary to add a few extra sentences or details to really drive home the key information required to go out in the world and confidently conduct mass work in accord with MLM principles. In this final form I am confident new comrades will be able to skip much of the guessing and confusion associated with building up cadre in already operating organizations, as they will be armed with all the terms they truly need to know when organizing as a Maoist, delivered to them via a text less than 50 pages long. It should be mentioned that this text can be considered a crash course in the basic terminology and concepts that make up MLM as a political theory. It is likely that not all of the information provided here is going to completely sink in on first read, or first listen. That said, new comrades should feel free to refer to this text as a dictionary of sorts, perhaps allowing the first reading to introduce the many terms you will hear over and over as you organize with and in Maoist formations. In my own personal experience, I find the most effective political education documents are the ones that I found myself reading many times, as compared to just once. Not because they are poorly written or hard to understand, but because they hold the exact information I am looking for and are consistently rewarding to reread. We hope that this text can be such a resource for new comrades. The sheer terminological mastery and competence of our comrades in the RMC cannot be understated in their initial production of this text, and we hope that it will prove to be a powerful tool in accelerating the development of the revolutionary movement within the imperial core. In solidarity, for the people, Chicago. Introduction. It is known that we are Maoists, but, for both those who identify as such and those seeking to learn, there remains some ambiguity as to what exactly Maoism is. Maoism is the third and highest stage of Marxism today. Its development is not reduced so simply to Marxism as the words of Marx, Leninism is the words of Lenin, Maoism is the words of Mao, nor is it Marxism as Marxism in the age of competition stage capitalism, Leninism is Marxism in the age of imperialism, and Maoism is Marxism in the age of world revolution. Maoism's development coincides with what some call the three world historical revolutions, the Paris Commune, the Bolshevik Revolution, and the Chinese Revolution, and the theoretical operationalizing of the most universal aspects drawn from these revolutions. However, this essay is focused on the theoretical content of each of these stages rather than the historical development of them, which shall be covered in later works published by the Revolutionary Maoist Coalition. We seek, here, to stage by stage, explain what theoretical aspects make up each of these advancements in Marxist thought and to explain those theories. Section 1. Marxism. To begin understanding Marxism, the theoretical and analytical base of Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, we must first understand dialectical materialism. Dialectical materialism is the world outlook and method of analysis of Marxists. It is made up of two essential aspects, the dialectical method, and philosophical materialism. 1.1. Dialectics. Dialectics, in short, is the theory of contradictions. This theory is made up of a few core principles. 1.1.1. The interconnectedness of things. Dialectics understands that nothing exists in a vacuum, that quote, no phenomenon in nature can be understood if taken by itself isolated from surrounding phenomena unquote and further that quote any phenomenon can be understood and explained if considered in its inseparable connection with surrounding phenomena unquote 1.1.2 the constant state of development dialectics understands that the world is not static and that change does not suddenly appear you do not one day have a flat landscape and the next have a mountain range these mountains are created through a process of tectonic plates colliding interacting and over a grand period of time creating a new landscape. Quote, The dialectical method therefore requires that phenomena should be considered not only from the standpoint of their interconnection and interdependence, but also from the standpoint of their movement, their change, their development, their coming into being and going out of being. Unquote. 1.1.3 Quantitative change leads to qualitative change. The basic movement of change is that of quantity and quality, minor changes leading to major shifts. Water does not magically turn to steam, It must go through a process of having its temperature altered. This is the principle of constant development. During this process, the temperature of the water is incrementally raised, degree by degree, as heat is applied. This is quantitative change. The water turns to steam once a critical temperature is reached, at which it changes physical form. This transformation in form is a qualitative change. 1.1.4 Contradiction is inherent in everything. Change does not occur out of nowhere, it arises from the interplay of contradictions. Further, these contradictions are not just external, arising when two outside forces begin to interact. The fundamental force of change are the contradictions which are internal to a particular phenomenon. Internal contradictions are inherent in all phenomena. Quote, again, water does not boil unless it is heated. But the boiling process resulting from the application of heat comes about on the basis of the internal contradiction of attraction and repulsion characteristics of the molecules of water. Unquote. This concept of contradictions being internal in all things may also be referred to as the unity of opposites. 1.1.5 The Negation of the Negation The negation of the negation, quote, takes us forward to a new starting point, which is the original point raised, through its negation, and the negation of said negation, to a higher level. Unquote. In society we see this process through the advancement of different modes of production. The course of development in most parts of the world have been from early communal system to the slave system, to the feudal system, to capitalism and then most recently to socialism. Each advancement in the mode of production negates the previous one. After socialism comes communism. Quote, here there is a return to the beginning, but a higher level of development. In place of primitive communism, based on extremely primitive forces of production, comes communism based on extremely advanced forces of production and containing within itself tremendous new potentialities of development. Unquote. 1.2. Materialism. Most of the above concepts regarding dialectics already existed within the model of the Hegelian dialectic. The true innovation that Marx and Engels made in the dialectical method was imbuing it with a philosophically materialist character. The principles of Marxist philosophical materialism are, 1.2.1, matter is primary over consciousness or ideas. The world is material. It is not the product of anything supernatural, metaphysical, or any universal spirit. The world cannot be changed by ideas unless those ideas are brought into the realm of matter by enacting them onto the material world. Quote, the materialist outlook on nature means nothing more than the simple conception of nature just as it is. 1.2.2. 2. 2. Objective reality. Quote, Contrary to idealism, which asserts that only our consciousness really exists, and that the material world, our being, and nature, exists only in our consciousnesses and in our sensations, ideas, and perceptions, Marxist philosophical materialism, on the other hand, holds that matter, nature, being, is an objective reality existing outside and independent of our consciousness. Unquote. 1.2.3, The world and its laws are knowable. Whereas philosophical idealism holds that there is no objective truth, Marxist philosophical materialism holds that we are capable of learning the laws of our world and discovering truth through scientific investigation. 1.3, Historical Materialism. Historical materialism is the application of dialectical materialism to history. It understands that quote, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggle, unquote, and that history moves through progressions and developments in the modes of production. The driving force of such development are the contradictions between the productive forces and the class relations of production in a given society. 1.4. Marxist political economy. Another key aspect of Marxism is its understanding of political economy the key aspects of Marxist political economy are as follows. 1.4.1, the Marxist understanding of commodities. Commodities are goods which are exchanged. They have two aspects. One, a use value, which satisfies a particular need. For example, the use value of a coat is that it keeps you warm, or the use value of a cup is that it allows you to drink from it. And two, an exchange value, which is the commodity's value expressed in the market, meaning its price. 1.4.2, the Marxist labor theory of value. Marxist political economy teaches us that labor is what gives a commodity its value. But it is not the individualized labor of each laborer, it is the socially necessary labor time for each commodity. Quote, some people might think that if the value of a commodity is determined by the quantity of labor spent on it, the more idle and unskilled the laborer, the more valuable would the commodity be, because more time would be required in its production. Unquote. However, in reality, quote, the labor time socially necessary, keyword, necessary, is that which is required to produce an article under the normal conditions of production, and with the average degree of skill and intensity prevalent at the time. Unquote. 1.4.3, Basic Exchange Circuits. Barter, expressed as cc, commodity, commodity, meaning, give commodity, get commodity, is the most basic circuit of exchange. The possessor of a commodity with a certain use value exchanges it for a commodity of a different use value. For example, A coat is exchanged for a chair. This can only occur if the socially necessary labor time invested in commodity A is equivalent to that in commodity B. This type of exchange amounts to an exchange in the quality of the use value, while the quantity of its exchange value remains the same between the items being traded. The need for the quantity of the exchange value to remain the same is the law of equivalent exchange. Once a given economy has grown large enough for a market to develop, CMC, commodity, money, commodity, meaning, sell commodity, get money, buy commodity, emerges as a new circuit of exchange. It follows the creation of money as a universal commodity, whose sole purpose exists to be exchanged. The original possessor of the commodity sells it for money, which is then used to buy a commodity of a different use value than the one started with. Once again, the end goal is gaining a commodity of a different use quality. The law of equivalent exchange is not violated thanks to the quantity of the exchange value being the same between the commodities. The exchange value of money, price, is always equivalent to the exchange value of a commodity sold at said price. Merchants arise as a class to facilitate exchange in the market, and their exchange circuit is MCM, money, commodity, money. They start their exchanges with money and end with the same quantity of money. This circuit represents selling commodities at their exact exchange value, and does not represent profit. Nonetheless, this is the prerequisite to the general formula of capital. 1.4.4 the general formula of capital. MCM prime. Money, commodity, a greater amount of money. The last M is denoted by M apostrophe, and is pronounced M prime. MCM prime is the general formula of capital, as it describes the capitalist beginning with one amount of money and ending with a larger amount. Profit. This violates the law of equivalent exchange, as the average capitalist somehow manages to end up with a larger amount of money than they started with. Marx recognized that the only way for this form of exchange to exist is for that commodity being exchanged to be a special commodity that creates value itself. 1.4.5. Labor power. Marx tells us, quote, by labor power, or capacity for labor, is to be understood as the aggregate of those mental and physical capabilities existing in a human being, which he exercises whenever he produces a use value of any description. Unquote. Please note, labor power is distinct from labor itself. Raw labor is what produces value or commodities, while labor power is the ability to create a given amount of value within a given amount of time. This, labor power, is also a commodity because it has a, a use value, to produce for the capitalist, and b, an exchange value, wages. Marx further explains the character of labor power as a unique commodity, quote, labor power can appear upon the market as a commodity, only, and so far as, its possessor, the individual whose labor power it is, offers it for sale, or sells it as a commodity. In order that he may be able to do this, he must have it at his disposal, must be the untrampled owner of his capacity for labor, i.e. of his person. The continuance of this relationship demands that the owner of the labor power should sell it only for a definite period, for if he were to sell it rump and stump, once and for all, he would be selling himself, converting himself from a free man into a slave, from an owner of a commodity into a commodity. Unquote. One of its other unique features lending to the advent of labor power becoming a unique commodity is that it is the only commodity which the laborer has access to sell for quote a man to be able to sell commodities other than labor power, he must of course have the means of production as raw material implements etc. Unquote. Moreover, just as commodities as a whole are given their value by the socially necessary labour time needed for their production, labor power too is subject to this law of political economy. Quote, the value of labor power is determined, as is every other commodity, by the labor time necessary for the production, and consequently also the reproduction, of this special article. The labor power is the value of the means of sustenance necessary for the maintenance of the laborer. These means of sustenance include food, clothing, fuel, and housing. Unquote. Finally, a critical aspect to understand regarding labor power is that, the capitalist epoch is, characterized by this, that labor power takes in the eyes of the laborer himself the form of a commodity which is his property his labor consequently becomes wage labor Unquote. wages are the continual sale of labor power a special commodity that creates value in and of itself 1.4.6 exploitation remember that in the general formula for capital mcm prime for a capitalist to end with a greater amount of money than they started the law of equivalent exchange must be broken by the incorporation of a special commodity that creates additional value we return to this formula having identified labor power as the special commodity being exchanged. From here we find the capitalist starting with one amount of money, then purchasing the labor power of the worker for a given day to be used producing commodities, and then selling those commodities at an exchange value that leaves the capitalist with more than what they started with. The only way for this to occur is if the exchange value of the worker's labor power, their wage, is less than the value they create in the production process. For example, it may only cost the equivalent of four working hours to keep a given worker alive and working in a given day, while their time spent working that day producing value for the capitalist will be eight hours. The capitalist then sells the goods they produce for the equivalent of eight hours of labor time, and repeats the process again with a larger starting pool of money. The additional value the capitalist gains from the sale of these commodities is called surplus value, as it is a surplus to what is necessary to pay for the worker's labor power. The laborer ultimately is paid for their time not the value their labor creates. They are paid less than the total value derived from their own labor. This entire process is called exploitation, and although it exists in all class-based societies whenever surplus value is taken from one class by another, this is how it occurs in the capitalist mode of production. 1.4.7. Crises. The capitalists do not produce commodities for their use, but solely for their exchange. If they cannot be sold, they are worthless to them. However, due to the process of exploitation the working class does not make enough from selling its labor power to purchase all of the goods that it produces. Eventually this catches up to the capitalists, who must then try to make up their lost sales by destroying their own commodities to produce artificial scarcity, laying off workers, and cutting costs in other areas, with the ones who are unable to keep up going out of business, and their means of production and commodities bought up by a more fortunate capitalist. This is a crisis, or more specifically a crisis of overproduction as the working class has produced more than it can buy on the market, thanks to the very laws of exchange that allow it to exist in the first place. The overproduction of goods while people are in need is a central contradiction at the heart of capitalism. 1.4.8, the tendency for the rate of profit to fall. Competing capitalists are constantly trying to lower their prices just enough to get an advantage over their competitors, but they also must keep the price high enough to make an adequate profit. A major way for a capitalist to lower their prices is to introduce machinery into their enterprise that will allow them to produce far more commodities than before, or to come up with some kind of new method that allows them to have more commodities made in the same amount of labor time than the previous method allowed. As we determined earlier, the exchange value of a commodity is the socially necessary labor time it takes to create the commodity. Therefore, if it costs an average of $8 to craft a hat, it will be sold accordingly for this amount. However, The breakthrough in technology is an interruption of the standard circulation of commodities. It is an enigma that allows this particular capitalist to craft, for example, hats, at an average rate of 6 hours per hat, 2 hours less than the average. This capitalist, wanting to make an even greater profit than normal, can then sell hats for $7, $1 cheaper than the average hat seller. As people flock to buy his hats, Since there is no point in spending more for a commodity of the same quality at a higher price, he is able to use these super-profits, that is, profits made above the average rate of profit, to expand and buy up capital that is lost by the members of the bourgeoisie who have lost their business to him. Some of the bigger capitalists who can afford the machinery that was introduced in this industry will buy new machines, lower their prices, and a balance will return to the competition between the remaining capitalists. Let's say the standard capitalist at the beginning of the example makes $1,500 from the sale of commodities produced from an investment of $500 in constant capital, meaning machinery and other tools of production, and another $500 in variable capital, meaning wages paid for labor power. Their profit after the commodities are sold is therefore $500 made from an initial investment of $1,000. The rate of profit is therefore 1 to 2, or 50%, as the capitalist can expect to make a profit of 50% off the investment. Now, After the new technology has been introduced in the lucky capitalist hat-making factory, he must invest more into machinery, raising the constant capital investment from $500 to $1,000. However, he is able to make a greater overall profit while he overpowers the competition, making a profit of, let's assume $750, as he lowers his prices just enough to beat out the competition. The ratio is the same for him, at least for now. This period of instability brought on by his domination can only be resolved when some of the other capitalists manage to avoid bankruptcy by buying these new machines as well. The result is that the price of the individual hats will be lower than ever before as the socially necessary labor time to make a hat is now half the time it was before. This new status quo does not come about instantly, but through the capitalists continuing to lower their prices back and forth in competition with one another, until they make the profit deemed necessary for them at the time, once again, $500. Now capitalists must invest more than ever before in order to meet the same standard as before, with the average capitalist now needing to invest $1,000 in constant capital and $500 in variable capital to create the same surplus as before, making the new rate of profit 1 to 3. This is how the rate of profit falls. What that means practically is that capitalists will have to invest more and more capital into their businesses in order to maintain their wealth. As production advances and develops in a given market, the initial investment cost to begin an enterprise skyrockets, reserving only the wealthiest capitalists for participation in said market. This drives the petty bourgeoisie, the class of small business owners, into the ranks of the proletariat, and concentrates vast amounts of capital into the hands of those who can continue to afford innovation. Even members of the ruling capitalist class are cast into the proletariat and the petty bourgeoisie through this process. The competition in capitalism, Something which is fundamental to capitalism for technological development ultimately leads to fewer and fewer capitalists and more and more proletarians one point four point nine capital quote capital is a social relation of production. it is a bourgeois relation of production, a relation of production of bourgeois society. the means of subsistence, the instruments of labor, the raw materials of which capital consists have they not been produced and accumulated under given social conditions within definite special relations. Unquote. This is the explanation of capital Marx wrote in 1847. Further, quote, capital consists not only of means of subsistence, instruments of labor, and raw materials, not only as material products, it consists just as much of exchange values. All products of which it consists are commodities. Capital, consequently, is not only a sum of material products, it is a sum of commodities, of exchange values, of social magnitudes, but though every capital is a sum of commodities, i.e., of exchange values it does not follow that every sum of commodities of exchange values is capital the existence of a class which possesses nothing but the ability to work is a necessary presupposition of capital unquote we thus see that in essence capital is a specific social role of production which emerges alongside a class which owns nothing but the ability to work meaning its labor power i.e the proletariat and which is expressed in economic terms via the exchange circuit of mcm prime 1.4.10 Mode of production. Marxism teaches us that throughout history there have been a number of different modes of production. A mode of production is made up of a combination of A, the productive forces, and B, the relations of production. Productive forces are made up of the means of production, i.e., the tools, machinery, and infrastructure required for production, and the people who operate them. The relations of production are simply the relations between people with regards to the productive forces, i.e., who owns the means of production and who operates them. Generally, Since the dawn of class society, the owners of means of production may be called the ruling class and the operators of those means of production may be called the laboring classes. The specifics of these classes change as modes of production advance. As with everything, production is always in a process of development. It never stays the same forever, and quote, changes in the mode of production inevitably call forth changes in the whole social system, social ideas, political views and political institutions. They call forth a reconstruction of the whole social and political order, unquote. More on this in the following section covering the base superstructure relationship. There have been five main modes of production which we have observed throughout history. 1. The early communal system, defined by common ownership of the land and means of production, and extremely underdeveloped productive forces. There were no classes or exploitation here. 2. The slave system, defined primarily by the the existence of a slave owner who fully owned both the land and the slave, and the slave who labored for the slave master and owned nothing of their own. The advent of slavery and slave-owning classes tightly corresponds with the advent of the agricultural revolution. 3. The feudal system, primarily defined by the existence of a feudal landlord class who owned the land which was toiled and partially owned the peasants under them, and the peasant who worked the land for the feudal lord and who may own some of their own implements of production, i.e. tools to plow the land, and some of the fruits of their labor. 4. The capitalist system. Which is primarily defined by the existence of a bourgeois capitalist who owns the means of production but not the worker who operates them, and the proletarian worker who owns nothing but their own labor power. 5. The socialist system. Here we have achieved collective ownership of the means of production by means of the working class seizing power over the capitalist via the dictatorship of the proletariat. The bourgeois class, though, has not yet been fully eradicated, and class struggle continues to wage while the threat of the bourgeoisie once again ascending to power, as was done in the Soviet Union socialist China, etc., still looms, although we have not yet seen it in practice, the communist system of production will follow the socialist mode of production once the bourgeois class has been globally eradicated and along with it the existence of money and the state. Here, we have fully overcome the contradictions of class society and have achieved the negation of the negation discussed in our section on Marxist Dialectics. 1.4.11 Base Superstructure Relationship Marx and Engels made initial theorizations on the base superstructure relationship. These theorizations teach us that society is made up of the material or economic base, that is the means of production and the relations of production, which determines the social superstructure that is made up of all the social, political, and ideological institutions in society, art, family, religion, media, philosophy, culture, science, law, etc. 1.5 Scientific Socialism In opposition to the utopian socialists of old, Marxism has imbued socialism with a scientific character by using the materialist dialectical method and the laws of Marxist political economy, which allowed them to see the contradictions of capitalism and the method of solving them. 1.5.1 Fundamental Contradiction of Capitalism Marxism has identified the basic contradiction of capitalism from which all other contradictions stem as being between socialized production and private ownership. 1.5.2 Principal Contradiction of Capitalism Based on the fundamental contradiction of socialized production versus private ownership, Marxism has found that the principal way in which this contradiction manifests is that between the bourgeoisie, who privately owns the means of production, and the proletariat, who own nothing but their own labor power and collectively labor on the means of production. This is to say the primary contradiction within capitalism is the fundamentally conflicting class interests of capitalists and the workers. 1.5.3 The Main Force of the Revolution Due to the understanding of the principal contradiction of capitalism being between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, and that within this contradiction that the bourgeoisie is the aspect which is dying away and the proletariat is the rising aspect, it can be scientifically concluded that the proletariat is the main force of communist revolution. 1.5.4. Revolutionary violence. The experience of the Paris Commune proved through concrete revolutionary practice that peaceful coexistence between the bourgeois and proletarian classes is impossible. Liberation for the working class is only achievable by means of violently removing the capitalist class from their position of power. A position which they achieved only through violent acquisition of land by means of blood and bullets. Section 2. Leninism. Leninism is the second stage of Marxism, synthesized from the universal lessons of the Russian Revolution by Stalin, Mao, and the Communist Party of China. Its major contributions to Marxist science follow below. 2.1. Theory of the State and the Dictatorship of the Proletariat. Leninism greatly expands on the theories of the state initiated by Marx and Engels in their writing on the Gotha Programme and the lessons they drew from the Paris Commune. It teaches us that, quote, the state is an organ of class rule, an organ for the oppression of one class by another. It is the reaction of order, which legalizes and perpetuates this oppression by moderating the conflict between classes. Unquote. From this conclusion we are able to draw the lesson that, just as the bourgeoisie wields its own state in order to repress the proletariat, in what is referred to as a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, or in our case, what we call liberal democracies, so too must the proletariat wield a state of their own to repress the bourgeois elements, in what is known as the dictatorship of the proletariat, or what we may call proletarian democracies, that will still exist following the initial seizure of political power by the workers. Lenin explains that this state will gradually wither away as we make the transition to communism, i.e. a classless society, wherein the state will no longer be necessary as there will no longer be an opposing class which requires political repression. 2.2, Vanguard Party. Leninism has taught us the importance of the proletarian party. The Vanguard Party model teaches us that the proletarian party cannot be made up of the entire class, but of the most advanced and organized aspects of our class, that it must be the highest form of organization of the working class, the most politically developed formation of our class which is deeply connected to the non-party masses and will lead our class to communist revolution through politically conscious strategic action. 2.2.1 Democratic Centralism Democratic Centralism is the organizational principle of the proletarian Vanguard Party. Lenin summed up democratic centralism in the formation of freedom of discussion, unity of action. The specifics of this method of organization are A. The leading units and groups in all levels of organization are chosen democratically. They are responsible to the group that chose them for the positions. B. After a free and thorough discussion, all decisions of the group are enforced and expected to be followed without hesitation. C. The leading unit or group must thoroughly read reports and inputs of the group and masses they lead they must always study the concrete experiences of the conditions and be immediate in giving guidance to solving problems that may arise. D, the lower units must give regular and special reports about their work to the higher organs, and they must proactively ask for instructions on problems that may arise and require decisions from the higher organs. E, all units follow the principles of collective leadership, and all important discussions are collectively decided. Unquote. 2.2.2. Cadres. All members of the Communist Party should be cadre, they are the heart of the vanguard party. Cadres are distinct from general members of activist or mass organizations in that they are the most politically advanced, the most educated, the most dedicated members of the working class, they are professional revolutionaries. 2.3. Imperialism as the highest stage of capitalism. In Lenin's Imperialism, The Highest Stage of Capitalism, he explains how the contradictions of capitalism's competition stage leads to a monopoly stage of capitalism also known as imperialism, which is the highest stage of capitalism. The transition from competition stage capitalism to monopoly capitalism becomes necessary due to the domination of domestic markets and the bourgeois drive to seek superprofits from foreign markets. The defining features of this stage are 1. The concentration of capital and production, which leads to the formation of monopolies. 2. The merging of bank capital and industrial capital, leading to the creation of what Lenin calls finance capital. 3. The transition to the export of capital rather than the export of commodities. 4. The economic division of the world among international capitalist monopolies. 5. The territorial division of the world among the great capitalist imperialist powers. 2.4. The National Question. Leninism lends us lessons on the liberation of oppressed nations and how to link them to the communist revolution. 2.4.1. Definition of a nation. In Marxism and the National Question, Stalin explains that the qualifications of a nation as follows 1. A common language. 2. A common territory. 3 a common economic life. 4. A national character, or common culture. Some examples of nations under this understanding, in the American context, include, the black new African Nation, the Chicano Nation, the Puerto Rican Nation, and the various indigenous nations which have occupied this land since before the arrival of European settlers, i.e., in the Chicago area, the Ojibwe, Odawa, Potawatomi, Miami, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Sac, Fox, Kickapoo, and Illinois nations. In the global context we see other examples including the Irish nation, the Kurdish nation, the Taino nation, the Kashmir nation, the Songhai nation, the Zarma nation, and many, many, many more. 2.4.2 The Right of Nations to Self-Determination Regarding the link between national liberation and communist revolution, Leninism came to understand the policy, in part, as one of self-determination. Lenin explains this concept with great precision as such, the right to self-determination implies exclusively the right to independence in the political sense, the right to free political separation from the oppressor nation. Specifically, this demand for political democracy implies complete freedom to agitate for secession and for referendum on secession by the seceding nation. Unquote. He notes, however, that, quote, recognition of self-determination is not synonymous with recognition of federation as a principle, because, the closer a democratic state system is to complete freedom to secede, the less frequent and less ardent will the desire for separation be in practice, because big states afford indisputable advantages, both from the standpoint of economic progress and from that of the interests of the masses, unquote. On the other hand, he further notes that, quote, one may be a determined opponent of federation as a principle and a champion of democratic centralism but still prefer federation to national inequality as the only way to full democratic centralism, unquote. It was from this standpoint that Marx, who was a centralist, preferred even the Federation of Ireland and England to the forcible subordination of Ireland to the English. Unquote. 2.4.3, Proletarian Internationalism. Regarding the other part of Leninist policy regarding the link between communist revolution and national liberation is proletarian internationalism. This principle is summed up in the slogan of, quote, workers and oppressed peoples of all countries, unite. Unquote. It understands that all workers and all colonized people of the world share the same struggle against capitalism-imperialism, and that we must unite together under the banner of communism and national liberation. It means that we must always link our domestic struggles with the international struggles of all oppressed peoples. 2.5, Theory of Opportunism Leninism gives us an understanding of what opportunism is, and why we must struggle against it, which is adequately summed up by Lenin as such, quote, Social chauvinism and opportunism are the same in their political essence, class collaboration, repudiation of the proletarian dictatorship, rejection of revolutionary action, obeisance to bourgeois legality, non-confidence in the proletariat, and confidence in the bourgeoisie. Unquote. 2.6. Understanding of socialist society. Leninism, due to its testing of theory through practice, gives us a deeper and practical understanding of what socialist society is than Marxism by itself does. In short, thanks to the practical accomplishments of the Bolsheviks and Leninism, we understand that socialism is the dictatorship of the proletariat, wherein the working class rules via its vanguard party which represses the bourgeois class in its attempts to reassert itself as the ruling class, and wherein class struggle and aspects of the old capitalist society still exists, while the process of the withering away of classes, state, and the money form play out in the form of continued revolutionary struggle that is to say that the accomplishments of Lenin teach us that a socialist society in and of itself is the unsettled struggle of the capitalists to regain power, and the workers to achieve communism. The workers cannot achieve this goal without the ongoing struggle of their vanguard party as the workers' state apparatus. Section 3, Maoism. Maoism is, as we stated at the beginning of this essay, the third and highest stage of Marxism today. It was synthesized following the theoretical operationalizing of the Chinese Revolution first initiated by Chairman Gonzalo of the Communist Party of Peru and then finalized on an international level by the many parties of the revolutionary internationalist movement. It has made many theoretical contributions to Marxist thought in the fields of philosophy, political economy, social science, party building, and military theory. Let us begin examining these contributions. 3.1 Philosophy Maoism has significantly advanced our conception of dialectical materialism and its application to practical problems in building revolution and socialist construction. 3.1.1 The Universality of Contradiction Mao sums up the universality of contradiction, a concept explained in the Marxism section of this essay, as such, quote, the universality, or absoluteness, of contradiction has a twofold meaning. One is that contradiction exists in the process of development of all things, and the other is that in the process of development of each thing, a movement, or interplay, of opposites exists from beginning to end. Unquote. Regarding contradiction existing in all things, we see this expressed in many different fields. For example, quote, in mathematics, plus and minus. In mechanics, action and reaction. In physics, positive and negative electricity. In chemistry, the combination and dissociation of atoms. In social science, the class struggle. Unquote. Regarding a movement of opposites existing from beginning to end, we can again return to our example of boiling water from earlier in the essay. While some metaphysicists may make the argument that the movement of opposites did not begin in our boiling water example until heat began being applied to the pot, we understand that, in reality, molecules which operate on laws of attraction and repulsion were present in the water, and that they were already interacting with one another, albeit not in the exact same way, from the beginning. Movement between opposites is inherent in all things, at all times. External forces do not single-handedly initiate development. Contradictions, and developments born of contradictions, are what Maoism tells us they are, universal. If the metaphysicist's understanding were true, it would mean that the fundamental force of change and processes of motion were external. As we have already discussed, external forces may contribute to the development of a process, but only so far as the internal forces allow for it to. An egg will develop into a chicken under the correct external conditions, however, a stone will never turn into a chicken no matter the external conditions, or contradictions, applied to it, because the stone's internal factors, meaning its internal contradictions, do not allow it to. 3.1.2, The Particularity of Contradiction The particularity of contradiction expresses the fact that although contradiction is inherent in all things, that the essence of different types of contradiction, its own unique motion of development, will be particular. For instance, we have already discussed how contradictions are universally expressed, as some examples, in mathematics, mechanics, physics, chemistry and social science, but the exact process of development of contradictions in, say, mathematics versus physics, will be expressed in its own particular way. This is to say the path for, and the potentials of, the development of any one thing is unique and particular to its internal contradictions at play. Understanding the unique qualities and particular aspects of phenomena we analyze as communists is crucial. Mao explains the importance of understanding the particularities of contradictions as such, quote, qualitatively different contradictions can only be resolved by qualitatively different methods. For instance, the contradiction between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie is resolved by the method of socialist revolution. The contradiction between the great masses of the people and the feudal system is resolved by the method of democratic revolution. The contradiction between the colonies and imperialism is resolved by the method of national revolutionary war. The contradiction between the working class and the peasant class in socialist society is resolved by the method of collectivization and mechanization in agriculture. Contradiction within the communist party is resolved by the method of criticism and self-criticism. The contradiction between society and nature is resolved by the method of developing the productive forces. Processes change, old processes and old contradictions disappear, new processes and new contradictions emerge, and the methods of resolving contradictions differ accordingly. Unquote. To put this another way, it can be said that within each of these things lie particular contradictions of unique qualities, and each is resolved by correspondingly particular methods with correspondingly unique qualities. The particular contradictions of two qualitatively different situations cannot be resolved by using the same method. Further speaking on how to analyze the particularity, Mao says, quote, in order to reveal the particularity of the contradictions in any process in the development of a thing, in their totality or interconnections that is, in order to reveal the essence of the process, it is necessary to reveal the particularity of the two aspects of each of the contradictions in that process, otherwise it will be impossible to discover the essence of the process. This likewise requires the utmost attention in our study. When we speak of understanding each aspect of a contradiction, we mean understanding what specific position each aspect occupies, what concrete forms it assumes in its interdependence and in its contradiction with its opposite, and what concrete methods are employed in the struggle with its opposite when the two are both interdependent and in contradiction, and also after the interdependence breaks down. 3.1.3, Principal Contradiction. Mao explains, quote, There are many contradictions in the process of development of a complex thing, and one of them is necessarily the principal contradiction whose existence and development determine or influence the existence and development of the other contradictions. Unquote. It has already been explained how the principal contradiction of capitalism is normally that between labor and capital, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Meaning that in an isolated context, the contradictions of all other factors within a class society are in a secondary position to, and determined by, the unique particularities of the principal contradiction between labor and capital. However, quote, when imperialism launches a war of aggression against such a country, all its various classes, except for some traitors, can temporarily unite in a national war against imperialism. At such a time, the contradiction between imperialism and the country-concerned becomes the principal contradiction, while all the contradictions among the various classes within the country, are temporarily relegated to a secondary and subordinate position. Unquote. 3.1.4. Principal Aspect. When we speak of contradictory aspects we mean those two things that make up the dialectic, or contradiction, being inspected. In the principal contradiction of capitalism the contradictory aspects would be the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Quote. In any contradiction the development of the contradictory aspects is uneven. Sometimes they seem to be in equilibrium, which is however only temporary and relative, while unevenness is basic. Of the two contradictory aspects, one must be principal and the other secondary. The principal aspect is the one playing the leading role in the contradiction. The nature of a thing is determined mainly by the principal aspect of a contradiction, the aspect which has gained the dominant position. But this situation is not static. The principal and the non-principal aspects of a contradiction transform themselves into each other and the nature of the thing changes accordingly. At certain times in the revolutionary struggle, the difficulties outweigh the favorable conditions, and so constitute the principal aspect of the contradiction and the favorable conditions constitute the secondary aspect. But through their efforts the revolutionaries can overcome the difficulties step by step and open up a favorable new situation. Thus a difficult situation yields its place to a favorable one. Unquote. Because the aspects of contradictions are not static and can change places, the role of revolutionaries is to bring about the quantitative and qualitative changes necessary to allow the rising tide of workers and their party to become the principal aspect of the class struggle. 3.1.5 Antagonistic versus Non-Antagonistic Contradictions The Maoist theory of contradiction teaches us that while contradiction and struggle between the contradictory aspects of every dialectic are universal, that antagonism is not That is to say that the existence of a contradiction does not necessarily mean that the contradictory aspects are antagonistic to one another. Antagonistic in this sense means that one is fundamentally hostile, or destructive, to the other. Further, it is possible for a contradiction which was once non-antagonistic to become antagonistic, and vice versa. What does this mean in practice? Under normal circumstances, the contradiction between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat is obviously an antagonistic one it can only be solved by means of eradicating the bourgeois class through revolution and socialist construction, leading to communism. However, as we've discussed above, during an instance in which foreign imperialists launch a war of aggression against a particular country or nation, the principal contradiction temporarily shifts from the contradiction between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, to that of the imperialists versus the country in question. In this instance, the antagonistic aspect of the contradiction between the domestic, or national, bourgeoisie who must now struggle against the invading capitalist imperialists, and the proletariat, changes. While the national bourgeoisie versus the proletariat it is still present as a contradiction, it temporarily becomes a non-antagonistic contradiction until the time that the imperialist invader has been defeated. A similar situation arises in periods which the proletariat may be struggling for a new democratic revolution, a concept we will return to in greater detail later in which the proletariat struggles side by side with the national bourgeoisie against the comprador bourgeoisie, the foreign imperialists, and the feudal landlords in order to overthrow semi-feudalism and colonialism. In both situations, the contradiction between the proletariat and the entire bourgeois class returns to an antagonistic character once the imperialists have been defeated or feudalism has been eradicated. The principal contradiction, at this point, returns to being between labor and capital and the chief goal of the proletariat becomes to establish a class dictatorship of their own. In times of foreign invasion, the proletariat, as well as their party, must recognize the imperialists as their chief priority. Other examples of non-antagonistic contradictions include the one between the proletariat and the peasantry, between the proletariat and the lumpen proletariat, between proletarian women and proletarian men, between cisgender workers and transgender workers, between heterosexual workers and non-hetero workers. What's important to understand is that while there are obviously contradictions, and individual antagonisms, between the pairs listed above, these antagonisms are not fundamental to the relationship between these things. This means that the method of solving these contradictions differs greatly from that of solving an antagonistic contradiction, like that of the class struggle. Quote, The contradictions between ourselves and the enemy are antagonistic contradictions. Within the ranks of the people, the contradictions among the working people are non-antagonistic since they are different in nature, the contradictions between ourselves and the enemy and the contradictions among the people must be resolved by different methods. To put it briefly, resolving the former entails drawing a clear distinction between ourselves and the enemy, and resolving the latter entails drawing a clear distinction between right and wrong. We in no way mean that coercive measures should be taken to settle ideological questions or questions involving the distinction between right and wrong among the people. All attempts to use administrative orders or coercive measures to settle ideological questions, or questions of right and wrong are not only ineffective but harmful. We cannot abolish religion by administrative order or force people not to believe in it. We cannot compel people to give up idealism, any more than we can force them to embrace Marxism. The only way to settle questions of an ideological nature or controversial issues among the people is by the democratic method, the method of discussion, criticism, persuasion and education, and not by the method of coercion or repression. Unquote. Conversely, the contradiction of the class struggle cannot be resolved through any such democratic method, and as an antagonistic contradiction, must be resolved through revolutionary violence and class warfare. 3.1.6 Theory of Knowledge. Maoist philosophy has given us a thorough understanding of what is called the theory of knowledge. This theory of knowledge regards the question of where correct ideas come from and how they are developed. Mao's great work on this subject, an essay entitled On Practice teaches us that this knowledge comes from practice. The Communist Party of India, Maoist, summarily explains quote, Knowledge does not drop from the sky, it comes from social practice and from it alone. True knowledge, or correct ideas, comes from three kinds of social practice the struggle for production, the class struggle, and scientific experiment. Unquote. Further, they go on to state that the acquisition of knowledge starts at a perceptual stage and advances to a conceptual stage of understanding. The process of obtaining knowledge, starts from perceptual knowledge, the stage of perceptions and impressions, where man at first sees only the separate aspects, the external relations of things. As social practice continues, things give rise to man's senses, perceptions, and impressions and in the course of his practice are repeated many times. Then a sudden change, or leap, takes place in the brain in the process of understanding, and concepts are formed. Concepts are no longer the phenomena, the separate aspects and the external relations of things, they grasp the essence, the totality and the internal relations of things, conceptual or logical or rational knowledge is a higher stage than the stage of perceptual knowledge. Unquote. However, the accomplishment of this conceptual or logical or rational knowledge is not the end of the development of knowledge. Quote, discover the truth through practice, and again through practice, verify and develop the truth. Start from perceptual knowledge and actively develop it into rational knowledge, then start from rational knowledge and actively guide revolutionary practice to change both the subjective and the objective world. Practice, knowledge, again practice, and again knowledge. This form repeats itself in endless cycles, and with each cycle the content of practice and knowledge rises to a higher level. Such is the whole of the dialectical materialist theory of knowledge. 3.2 Maoist Political Economy the Chinese experience of building socialism, which reached a higher point than any other socialist experiment in history, gives us a great number of lessons regarding political economy. While they are, of course, all based on our understanding of Marxist and Marxist Leninist political economy, we are able to see great leaps occur in deepening our understanding of socialist construction and political economy through the contributions of Mao Zedong, the Communist Party of China, and the revolutionary parties which followed them, such as the Communist Party of Peru, Communist Party of India, Maoist and others. 3.2.1, Advancements in Base Superstructure Relationship. Marx and Engels determined that the economic base of society determines the social and political superstructure when they were conducting their initial investigation and critique of capitalism. However, Mao Zedong uncovered nuances to this law during his ideological struggle against the revisionist Khrushchevites within the USSR and those taking the capitalist road within the Communist Party of China, such as Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping. Specifically, by quote applying dialectics to analyze the relationship between the base and superstructure, and, continuing the struggle of Marxism-Leninism against the revisionist thesis of the productive forces theory, he concluded that the superstructure, consciousness, can modify the base, and that with political power the productive forces can be developed. Unquote. Let us briefly touch on what exactly productive forces theory is, and why Mao righteously struggled so intensely against it. The Communist Party of India, Maoist, explains this very question as such, quote, the representatives of this rend upheld the Khrushchevites, negated the class struggle and concentrated attention towards building modern productive forces, primarily through heavy industry. Their argument was that productive forces are the main motor of change and it was the backward productive forces in China that were the main factor holding back the development of the country changes in production relations should wait until after the productive forces had been developed enough, the cooperativization of agriculture should wait until industries developed enough to provide machinery for rural mechanization. All these proposals negated the importance of the relations of production and the class struggle. It would lead to growth of revisionist and bureaucratic trends and the growth of a new exploiting class. It is worth noting that it was precisely this revisionist theory which gave way for an inner-party bourgeoisie, a concept we will inspect in greater detail later. To grow and eventually overthrow the proletarian dictatorship in the Soviet Union, and after the death of Mao, would do exactly the same thing in China. It was in this struggle wherein Mao and the revolutionary faction of the Communist Party of China understood the development of relations of production to be primary to the development of the productive forces that Mao discovered the laws of how the superstructure can and should be developed to determine the economic base in specific circumstances. Quote, it was possible to destroy the old production relations only after we had overthrown a backward superstructure in the course of revolution. After the old production relations had been destroyed new ones were created and these cleared the way for the development of new social productive forces. Thus, Mao uncovered that the order of development is, 1. overthrowing the backwards, bourgeois superstructure, that is, the political institutions which make up bourgeois society. 2. the development of relations of production. That is the relations that people have to each other in the process of production as well as to the means of production themselves, i.e., the relationship between capital and labor, and finally, 3. The development of the productive forces, that is, the development of the means of production themselves and those who operate those means of production. Further justifying this formula, Mao states: quote, the bourgeoisie first changed the superstructure and took possession of the machinery of state before carrying on propaganda to gather real strength. Only then did they push forward great changes in the production relations. When the production relations had been taken care of and they were on the right track they then opened the way for the development of the productive forces. To be sure, the revolution in the production relations is brought on by a certain degree of development of the productive forces, but the major development of the productive forces always comes after changes in the production relations. 3.2.2. Bureaucratic Capitalism The theory of bureaucratic capitalism is not applicable to our conditions in the so-called United States, but is a critically important theory for analyzing conditions of the global periphery, meaning the colonized and semi-colonized countries. Chairman Gonzalo of Peru summarized the theory of bureaucratic capitalism as, quote, capitalism which is being developed in the oppressed nations by imperialism along with different degrees of underlying feudalism, or even pre-feudal stages. Unquote. Bureaucratic capitalism may also be referred to in Maoist texts as semi-feudal countries. Some examples of countries which are currently living under the conditions of bureaucratic capitalism include Peru, Nepal, India, the Philippines, Brazil, Ecuador, and Swaziland, to name a few. 3.2.3 Socialist Construction. In both his struggle against the revisionists of China and his critique of Soviet political economy, Mao developed an advanced understanding regarding the organization of socialist economy and development. Although the economy of the present day United States differs greatly from that of China in the 20th century, we will still have to fundamentally restructure and change our economy following the seizure of power by the working class. As an imperialist economy, we are an exporter of capital, but an importer of commodities. This means that the vast majority of commodities on the market in this country are produced by cheap colonial labor in foreign lands. Mao's formula of using heavy industry as the lead factor, agriculture as the base of the economy, and light industry as the bridging factor provides a great basis for how we might organize our economy once we begin to rely on our own domestic labor under a socialist organization of the economy. 3.3. National Liberation. The path of revolution in China provided great lessons for colonized and semi-colonized peoples. While some of these lessons are unique to people who live in the global periphery, there are still great lessons to be utilized by those internal colonies of countries in the global center. Because it is necessary that we are able to have thorough analyses of global conditions, we will list both those lessons which are applicable to colonized people in our own country, and those applicable to other countries. Firstly, Mao developed a dialectical understanding of the bourgeoisie of oppressed nations. In this theoretical development, Mao saw that the bourgeois class of oppressed nations has a dual character wherein there exists both a comprador bourgeoisie and a national bourgeoisie, and that our orientation towards these two aspects of the nationally oppressed bourgeoisie vary accordingly. The Communist Party of India, Maoist, explains, quote, the Comprador bourgeoisie, who depends on imperialism for its existence and growth, was always an enemy of the revolution. The national bourgeoisie was a vacillating ally who would sometimes help the revolution and sometimes join the enemies. This dual character of the nationally oppressed bourgeoisie is certainly helpful to conducting class analysis of oppressed colonies in so-called America. For example, we saw both a national bourgeoisie and comprador bourgeoisie who came into political confrontation during the struggle to stop Line 3. The comprador bourgeoisie were those members of the Anishinabe bourgeoisie who cut deals with Enbridge Energy to build a pipeline through Indigenous treaty slash reservation land. On the other hand, we also saw a national bourgeoisie represented by those members of the Anishinabe bourgeoisie who not only rhetorically opposed the construction of the pipeline but offered refuge to working-class and lumpen water protectors when camps were broken up by settler pigs during the campaign. From this understanding of the two different aspects of the colonized bourgeoisie, Mao developed a theory known as New Democracy, or the New Democratic Revolution, to be applied to the colonized-slash-semi-colonized, semi-feudal global periphery. While this theory is less applicable to our conditions, it is critically important for understanding the development of revolutionary processes in other parts of the world. To understand the Maoist theory of New Democratic Revolution, we can look to the CPI, Maoist summation, quote, Lenin had already pointed out that in the era of imperialism and proletarian revolution, it was the proletariat and not the bourgeoisie that would lead the bourgeois democratic revolution. Mao in his work on New Democracy, carried this understanding further, pointing out that in this era, any revolution in a colony or semi-colony that is directed against imperialism no longer comes within the old category of the bourgeois democratic world revolution, but within a new category, it is no longer part of the old bourgeois, or capitalist world revolution, but is part of the proletarian socialist world revolution. Such revolutionary colonies and semi-colonies can no longer be regarded as allies of the counter-revolutionary front of world capitalism, they have become allies of the revolutionary front of world socialism. Thus, in order to differentiate from the old bourgeois democratic revolution, he called the revolution in colonies and semi-colonies a new democratic revolution. Unquote. This new democratic revolution is achieved through the formation of a class alliance which unifies the proletariat, the peasantry, the urban petty bourgeoisie, and the national bourgeoisie under the leadership of the proletariat and their communist party. It is additionally noteworthy that Maoists understand this new democratic revolution to be a transitional stage which the communist party must steer into the development of socialism. The theory and application of new democracy is, in our analysis, less applicable in our country this is because during their socialist revolution. China had not yet experienced a bourgeois democratic revolution and was still living under semi-feudal rule, meaning the bourgeoisie had not fully come to conquer the feudal landlord class. The so-called United States on the other hand, has had such a revolution. Our democratic revolution which was certainly of this old category of the bourgeois democratic world revolution occurred within the American Civil War of 1861 to 1865 wherein the bourgeois capitalist class eradicated the political power of the southern slave-owning class and finalized the process of establishing capitalist rule throughout the entirety of the United States. The bourgeoisie of internal colonies of this country, especially within the last several decades, have increasingly been able to directly participate in this now capitalist imperialist system. The 2008 election of Barack Obama even allowed for the new African Comprador bourgeoisie to sit in the office of president for the first time in the settler empire's history. Thus, while it is still imperative to make a distinction between the Comprador bourgeoisie and national bourgeoisie of internal colonies, and that we can form a class alliance with the national bourgeoisie of various oppressed nations via a united front led by the proletariat, our revolutionary goal within the United States is distinctly a proletarian socialist revolution as opposed to a new democratic one. 3.4, Theory and Practice of the Socialist Stage. In addition to the great contributions made regarding the political-economic aspect of building socialism, the experience of the Chinese Revolution has deepened our understanding of the socio-political issues of the socialist stage. This theory and practice of the socialist stage deals primarily with the development of modern revisionism and continuing class struggle under socialism. 3.4.1, Modern Revisionism. Regarding revisionism, particularly its modern form, Chairman Gonzalo said in 1988, "First, First, we should remember that every advance of Marxism has been made amidst fierce struggle. And in this process of development of Marxism, old-style revisionism emerged and met its downfall in the First World War. But since then, we communists have confronted a new revisionism, modern revisionism, that began to develop with Khrushchev and his lackeys, and which is now unleashing a new offensive against Marxism. Its main centers are the Soviet Union and China. Revisionism arose as a complete negation of Marxism. Modern revisionism, likewise, is always aiming to substitute bourgeois philosophy for Marxist philosophy, going against political economy, particularly denying the growing impoverishment and the inevitability of the downfall of imperialism. Revisionism strives to falsify and twist scientific socialism in order to oppose the class struggle and revolution, peddling parliamentary cretinism and pacifism. All these positions have been expounded by the revisionists, who have aimed for and continue to aim for the restoration of capitalism, the undermining and blocking of the world revolution, and to denigrate the conquering spirit of our class. But here I feel it is necessary to spell out some points to make this concrete. Revisionism behaves like any imperialism. For example, the Soviet Union, Soviet social imperialism, preaches and practices parliamentary cretinism. It mounts and conducts armed actions for the purpose of gaining world hegemony. It carries out aggression, pits one people against another, sets masses against masses, and divides our class and the people. In a thousand and one ways Soviet revisionism fights against everything that is truly Marxist and everything that serves the revolution. We see, then, this modern revisionism which arose first with Khrushchev and his lackeys, and then within the inner-party bourgeoisie of China with renegades Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping. These were the proletarian enemies Mao was struggling against when he first developed the theory of modern revisionism and the correct method of combating them the danger of modern revisionism cannot be understated. If we understand, as laid out earlier, that external forces can only impact the development of a process insofar as the internal contradictions allow, then we cannot reduce the collapse of socialism in the USSR and China to the influence of outside imperialist forces, but must understand that it was a result of the internal contradictions within these countries of the rising modern revisionists against the revolutionary working class, and thus that modern revisionism is the sole root of socialist collapse. These modern revisionists exist in all stages of party building. They existed in the Bolshevik Party in Russia with Trotsky, Plahanov, and Bukharin from the beginning. Later we saw the emergence of such dastardly men as Khrushchev, Brezhnev and the slime that succeeded them. We saw figures such as Kautsky and Bernstein in Germany who would ultimately prevent the German communists from being able to seize power in their country. Arch revisionists and opportunists such as Earl Browder, Sam Marcy, Bob and the La Riva Becker clique have historically hampered and pacified the communist movement here in the so-called United States, rendering our movement harmless to big capital and bourgeois state power. For this reason, it is necessary to constantly be alert to their infiltration of the communist party we must denounce them within and outside of our organizations without fear, we must expose them as revisionists and agents of the capitalist class to our members and to the public, and we must purge them from our organizations and our organizing spaces as soon as they have been exposed as the class collaborationists and agents of capitalism that they are, lest they develop into the inner-party bourgeoisie once we are finally able to actually seize state power. 3.4.2 Inner-Party Bourgeoisie the modern revisionists of the Soviet Union and China, and of countries like Cuba with Fidel Castro, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea with Kim Il-sung, Vietnam with Nguyen Van Ling, the German Democratic Republic with Eric Honecker, etc., became part of what is known as the inner-party bourgeoisie. These are those members of the Communist Party who engage in such bourgeois elements as corruption, theft, speculation, embezzlement, etc., but who mainly are those who push for the capitalist road of development, or the restoration of capitalism. Quote, Some of these in power who took the capitalist road were renegades, agents, and scabs who had mixed into the Communist Party, such as Liu Shaoqi and his likes. Some were fellow travelers of the party during the Democratic Revolution. Unquote. Mao further explains this phenomenon of people who were close allies of the Communist Party during the Democratic Revolution who then betrayed the socialist cause once the proletarian dictatorship had been established. He states quote, After the Democratic Revolution, the workers and poor peasants have not stopped they want to make a revolution. However, some party members do not want to move forward. Some have retreated and opposed the revolution. Why? They became high officials, and they must protect the interests of high officials. This concept of an inner party bourgeoisie is crucially important to understand because if we fail to comprehend it then we will not be able to direct class struggle correctly under socialism. What do we mean by this? We know that class struggle continues under socialism that the reason the dictatorship of the proletariat must exist is precisely to repress and eradicate the last vestiges of the bourgeois class. We know, as discussed above, that agents of the bourgeoisie will exist in the Communist Party at all stages of its development in the form of the modern revisionists. However, before the party seizes state power, the main force of the bourgeoisie exists outside of the Communist Party in the form of their own political parties and capitalist trusts. But, as Chin Zhengxian notes, quote, with the deepening of the socialist revolution the non-party bourgeoisie lost its means of production, suffered repeated failures on the political and ideological front, its reputation was bad, and its strength gradually weakened. From this point on, the inner-party bourgeoisie has emerged as the core force of the entire bourgeoisie. With the exception of the Communist Party of China under Mao, the CPs which rose to power during the first wave of proletarian revolutions in the 20th century failed to recognize this fact. Even the Communist Party of the Soviet Union under Stalin made the mistake of believing that the core force of the bourgeoisie remained outside of the party in the form of either the international bourgeoisie or the few remaining bourgeois forces in production and academia. Only in China did the revolutionary forces of the proletariat and poor peasants properly understand where the main force of the capitalist class resided, and only there were they able to direct the continuation of class struggle in the direction necessary to stave off the restoration of capitalism for a period. 3.4.3 continuing class struggle under socialism, and the cultural revolution. In recognizing the danger of modern revisionism and the inner-party bourgeoisie, having seen the Khrushchev clique already betray the revolution in the Soviet Union and the Liu-Dang clique quickly rising in China, Chairman Mao developed the theory of cultural revolution. Cultural revolution is the logical continuation of the mass line, to be discussed in depth in a later section, and of class struggle. It recognizes that class struggle does not end with the establishment of the dictatorship of the proletariat a position which was advocated for by arch-revisionists such as Khrushchev, Liu Shaoqi, Deng Xiaoping, and their successors. Quote, the tasks it, it meaning the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, or GPCR, sets out to solve is to mobilize the broad masses, during the period of socialism, to make revolution against the bourgeoisie, particularly against the bourgeoisie within the party. The significance of the GPCR is to combat and prevent revisionism, to consolidate the dictatorship of the proletariat, to prevent the restoration of capitalism and to build socialism. This cultural revolution differs from revolutions of other types, bourgeois revolutions, anti-imperialist revolutions, new democratic revolutions, and socialist revolutions, in that it is not waged only a singular time. Because the conditions which create an inner-party bourgeoisie will continue to exist for a grand period of time, until we have reached a classless, moneyless, stateless society on a global scale, i.e., communism, it is a revolution which may have to be waged many times over the course of the transitional socialist stage. Quote, the present great cultural revolution is only the first, there will inevitably be many more in the future. In the last few years, Comrade Mao Zedong has said repeatedly that the issue of who will win in the revolution can only be settled over a long historical period. If things are not properly handled, it is possible for a capitalist restoration to take place at any time. It should not be thought by any party member or any one of the people in our country that everything will be all right after one or two great cultural revolutions, or even three or four. We must be very much on the alert and never lose vigilance. Unquote. 3.5. Social imperialism. Social imperialism has its origins in the national chauvinist positions taken by the opportunists of the Second International and in their support for the imperialist ambitions of their countries in World War I. In the situation the world was facing at the time, Lenin described social imperialists as socialists in words and imperialists in deeds. In this sense, social imperialism refers to the actions of self-proclaimed socialists who support or are materially complicit in the imperialist actions of their ruling class. A modern example of this kind of social imperialist is Bernie Sanders with his support of NATO intervention in Yugoslavia. Another example exists in the context of the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, when certain revisionists, often Trotskyists or democratic socialists, support the U.S. sending weapons to the Kiev government, or argue in favor of outright military intervention. This is the easiest kind of social imperialism to recognize. Social imperialism also refers to the reintroduction of capitalist imperialism following the victory of the revisionist forces led by the inner-party bourgeoisie and formerly socialist countries such as the USSR and China. To explore this concept further, We should follow the emergence of the Soviet Union as a social imperialist power following the victory of the Khrushchevite revisionists. Economic reforms introduced during this period established profitability and the realization of exchange value as primary considerations for the organization of the economy. While the realization of use value and meeting the needs of the masses were the primary concerns of the CPSU during socialist construction. These reforms, argued for on the basis of being supposedly unbiased and scientific approaches to production development, pushed the party bureaucrats to squeeze profit out of the working class. With their position now determined by how much surplus value they could extract, these bureaucrats began to introduce old methods of capitalist exploitation into the socialist economy. One of the most notorious of these methods was the specialization of commodity production by region and country, as opposed to the creation of self-reliant and independent industries to meet the needs of the people. This can be clearly seen in a conversation between Enver Haja of Albania, and Khrushchev that occurred before the notorious 20th Congress of the CPSU cemented the latter's position as head of the revisionists. In response to Albania's request for aid in the development of their oil industry Khrushchev stated, quote, we must have regard for profitability in everything, let us take industry. I am of the same opinion as you that Albania should have its own industry. But what sort of industry? I think that you ought to develop the food industry, such as preserving and processing fish, fruit, vegetable oil, etc. You want to develop heavy industry too. This should be looked at carefully. Unquote. He added quote, As for the mineral processing industry, for the production of metals, this is unprofitable for you. We have metals and we can supply you with what you want. If we give you one day's production from our industry, your needs will be fulfilled for the whole year. Unquote. This reflected what the revisionists came to call quote, the International Socialist Division of Labor. Unquote. The Great Soviet Encyclopedia of 1979 described its positive attributes in this way. Quote, the division of labor in agriculture and the food processing industry makes it possible to supply each socialist country with the foods and agricultural materials that cannot be produced or are produced in insufficient quantities owing to adverse climatic or other conditions. Among the most important of these products are grain, which the USSR exports to the GDR, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and Cuba. Cotton and Linen, which the USSR exports to a number of socialist countries, and fresh and canned fruits and vegetables, which are exported from Bulgaria, Romania, and Hungary to the USSR, the GDR, Czechoslovakia, and other socialist countries. Sugar is exported from Cuba to a number of socialist countries, livestock products, from Mongolia to other socialist countries, and eggs, poultry, and ham, from Poland and other socialist countries. Unquote. While the revisionists argue that this is simply a practical way of managing production, the reality is that it limited the development of industries in countries aligned with the USSR and turned their economies into puzzle pieces of a greater whole, rather than independent socialist economies. This resulted in the economies of the socialist camp becoming subservient to the Soviet economy and dependent on the social imperialist web that they had created. During the existence of the revisionist Soviet Union, this ensured its allies were in reality its neo-colonies. The devastation that followed the victory of American imperialism over Soviet social imperialism was in many ways a result of this, as the formerly revisionist countries had to overhaul their economies to fit a new imperialist web. An excellent example of this is Cuba. While nominally independent, Cuba has never developed an independent economy, and attempts to do so during its brief period of socialist construction were discarded in favor of growing the sugar industry to an even greater extent than the pre-revolutionary period. This gave the country its place in the puzzle of the International Socialist Division of Labor. When the Soviet Union collapsed, Cuba lost its patron and was forced to resort to becoming a tourist attraction, leading to the re-emergence of prostitution in the country as sex tourism followed, as well as an investment spot for Israeli businesses. The Cuban people are still suffering from the repercussions of Soviet social imperialism, and were an external situation to change, such as the importation of Venezuelan oil or aid from Russia and China the weakness and dependence of the Cuban economy on others would be revealed once more. Their disregard for self-reliance in the economy cannot be reconciled with socialist values. Social imperialism, just like classic imperialism, also involves the intervention of imperialist military forces in an effort to squash national self-determination. Two examples of this exist in the 1968 Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. While the Prague Spring government was a revisionist one, so was the government it replaced and the government the Soviets set up in the country. Therefore, the end result of their invasion was the replacement of a reactionary government with another reactionary government, with the only real difference being the puppet regime's new allegiance to Moscow. This was apparently worth the shedding of Czechoslovakia blood and the stationing of a foreign army on their soil. In the case of Afghanistan, the Soviets decapitated the Afghan government in the Tajbeg Palace assault in 1979 despite it already being aligned with the USSR and replaced it with a more stable and loyal administration. Afghanistan's status as a puppet of social imperialism led to the defeat of the revisionist government in the Afghan Civil War and the eventual victory of the Taliban, as the revisionists had no real base of support in the Afghan masses and instead relied on Soviet troops to fight the Mujahideen, who emerged victorious once the Soviets pulled out of the country had the supposed communist leaders of the country held the support of the masses, no force could defeat them. Maoists in the country knew that only a communist party that truly represents the interests of the people can defeat the dual threat of homegrown reaction and foreign imperialism, and have been fighting a prolonged struggle for socialism over the past four decades. 3.6. The Mass Line. Mao developed the theory of mass line based off of the basic Marxist-Leninist theory of the party, namely, as discussed above, that the vanguard party must be deeply connected with the non-party masses. This theory is based on two basic principles. One, the masses, and the masses only, are the makers of history, and two, from the masses, to the masses. The first principle explains that revolutionary changes in history only occur when the masses are mobilized to make those changes. It stands in direct opposition to the bourgeois notion of great man theory which holds that history is developed and made by singular strong individuals, by men like Napoleon, Lenin, Mao, by kings, kaisers generals, presidents, and chairmen. While certainly these people played major roles in some of the most impactful changes in history, it is pure idealism to think that they could have done these things by themselves. These major historical figures were only able to rise to political power because they had people in the thousands or millions standing behind them. Could Napoleon have overthrown the feudal lords of France, Politically liberating the bourgeoisie from feudal power for the first time ever, had he not had the support of the French bourgeois and peasant classes, who had a strong vested interest in the downfall of landlord class, mobilized behind him. Could Mao have overthrown Japanese imperialism, the feudal landlords of China and the bourgeoisie without the millions of peasants and workers of China behind the CPC? Communists everywhere must thoroughly understand this principle. We shall never be able to oust the current bourgeois dictatorship in favor of a proletarian dictatorship if we do not have the support of the millions of workers and lumpenslash proletarians behind us. The second principle is superbly summed up by the Communist Party of India, Maoist, as follows quote, This means, take the ideas of the masses, scattered and unsystematic ideas, and concentrate them, through study, turn them into concentrated and systematic ideas, then go to the masses and propagate and explain these ideas until the masses embrace them as their own hold fast to them and translate them into action and test the correctness of these ideas in such action. Then once again concentrate ideas from the masses and once again go to the masses so that the ideas are preserved in and carried through. And so on, over and over again in an endless spiral, with the ideas becoming more correct, more vital and richer each time. Mass line additionally gives us a framework in how to understand the various strata of the masses and our orientation towards them. The masses can be divided into the three sections of one, the politically advanced, 2, the politically intermediate, 3, the politically backwards. As the Communist Party of the Philippines explains, quote the advanced ranks of the masses have a clear understanding of their basic conditions and are ready to struggle to change it. The backward part of the masses meanwhile can be easily influenced by backward ways of thinking and may be resistant to struggle for change. The middle part meanwhile may understand the need for change but are reluctant and hesitant to move for action. Unquote when we are concentrating the ideas of the masses we must be careful to make sure it is the ideas of the advanced and intermediate sections which are being concentrated and then propagated. Likewise, when we say that it is the masses who are the makers of history, we must be clear that we mean the advanced and intermediate, not the backwards. Errors in understanding this lead to tailism wherein the advanced and intermediate sections are ready for radical action while the party or other communist organizations refuse to take such action because they are too concerned with the ideas of the politically backwards that are resistant to political change. Upholding the mass line does not necessarily mean standing behind the most popular opinions. It can also lead to erroneous political lines being taken up, Such as the white supremacist and settler colonial idea of patriotic socialism pushed by the likes of Philistine self-proclaimed communists who believe that such a position is necessary in order to win white people over to our cause, those of us with even the slightest ability to read between the lines know that they only want to build a movement of strasserite national socialism. Our orientation to these various strata should be, mobilize and recruit the advanced, develop the intermediate, and isolate the backwards. Such is the basic Maoist method of leadership such as upholding the mass line in our organizing. 3.7. Revolutionary Proletarian Feminism Maoism has given us the invaluable tool of revolutionary proletarian feminism. This uniquely Maoist school of feminist thought, originally developed by Indian revolutionary Anuradha Gandhi, places the struggle for feminism firmly in the realm of the class struggle without becoming a victim of the crude class reductionism of so-called Marxist feminists. Revolutionary proletarian feminism is summed up brilliantly as follows, 1. Quote, adherence to a Marxist, historical materialist, and dialectical materialist framework of analysis. Proletarian feminism makes a criticism, however, of socialist and Marxist feminism as philosophical trends that make the same claim. The main difference is on how to approach the question of emancipatory practice and the rejection of a commonality between women regardless of class, nationality, race, etc., while at the same time upholding the centrality of the class struggle for the destruction of patriarchy. Patriarchal oppression is part of class oppression, not a separate or complementary oppression, and has its root in class society as a historical materialist fact, neither born with capitalism as a mode of production, nor merely a residual or vestigial feudal remain, but rather an intrinsic part of any class society regardless of mode of production. As such, only communism can destroy patriarchy once and for all. Any attempts to separate patriarchy from class society as a whole ultimately lead to strategic dead ends for feminism. 2 rejection of biological determinism in defining women, sex-slash-gender roles, and of the implications of the sex-slash-gender system for all people. This includes a rejection of sex-slash-gender differences existing as a biological fact in any degree of independence from social, economic, and political relations. It doesn't deny biological difference among people, these are obvious, it just rejects the claim that sex-slash-gender ordering is principally related to biological differences, or the view that sex and gender stem from some biological essence. Not all women can or do get pregnant, for example, and yet they remain women. Not all women are assigned womanhood at birth, yet they are still women. This is not to say the gender binary is beyond criticism, just that the criticism of this binary based on biology is wrong. There is no female and male brain, but there is indeed a female and male social existence into which people fall, either forced into it, or because of identity. 3. A social and economic understanding of the role of the family as an economic unit. One that doesn't seek to abolish the family as some sort of heterosexual invention, but to transform its internal relations, as well as its wider role in society. Emphasis is on the centrality of political power and society wide transformation of economic relations as a way to transform the family, rather than privatizing family relations as a matter of individual will. By implication, it doesn't see the family as the primary trench of combat against patriarchy. The primary trench of combat is society at large. This doesn't mean the family is immune. Families are part of society at large and thus are part of the wider societal combat against patriarchy. It does mean the special role given by many feminist trends to the family beyond it being a unit of production and reproduction is incorrect. One can abolish the family and as long as class society exists, so will patriarchy, it will just find some other way to organize the production and reproduction of gender oppression and patriarchal domination. The focus on the family of many trends, in particular when this focus ignores the rest of society, is challenged by proletarian social struggle. 4. Emphasis on the non antagonistic aspects of the contradiction between proletarian men and proletarian women, rather than posing the contradiction as mainly antagonistic. Emphasis is placed on struggling against systemic oppression along with microaggressions and oppressions generated at the level of individual interactions, rather than only on the individual oppressions. Instead of men in general being the enemy, it is patriarchy, as part of class society and capitalism imperialism, who is the enemy. Likewise, women are not simply the revolutionary subject. Many women are defenders of the class system and thus are in the reactionary camp, even when they purport to seek to emancipate women. 5. An embrace of large-scale, mass mobilization of society as a whole, and proletarian masses specifically, as the method of struggle for liberation, as opposed to separatism, small group, safe space emphasis and other trends, as well as a rejection of the underlying theoretical frameworks that these separatist trends represent. While not hostile to trade unionist frameworks, it does advocate the formation of cadre and mass formations of a proletarian feminist nature as an exercise of self-determination within a wider proletarian and revolutionary movement. 6. Anti-imperialism and a global focus on patriarchy, rather than a focus solely on the needs of white, affluent, Euro-American women. This includes inserting into the conversation on sexuality the consequences of the sex trade, sex tourism, and pornography for poor, non-white, and oppressed nationality women, especially in the internal colonies, neo-colonial, semi-colonial, and colonial world. It also includes a rejection of unproblematized support for women's emancipation for the purpose of supporting imperialist plunder, such as the advocacy by some feminists of equal opportunities in imperialist armed forces. The only army fighting for gender equality is the People's Army. 7 advocacy of revolutionary organization and mass political activity and a rejection of reformist organizing and affinity-based activity, but not reforms themselves, and of the belief that organizational hierarchy is inherently patriarchal, masculine, and otherwise alien to women and thus opposed to feminism. A revolutionary party that contains people of all genders as cadre and leaders is not only seen as necessary, but advocated centrally as part of proletarian feminism. And this party leading a people's army in which patriarchy is struggled against at any level, in which women develop as leaders and soldiers is also central to proletarian feminism. 8. Advocacy of all means of struggle, nonviolent and violent, in advancing the struggle against patriarchy from a proletarian and revolutionary perspective. This rejects all claims of violence being patriarchal as biological essentialism. This also recognizes the capacity of women to be as ruthless as men when it comes to being oppressors. The fact that men dominate society is not an issue of biological capacity or inherent nature of women. Cultural feminist claims of women being less violent or more loving are in fact based on patriarchal notions of sex-slash-gender roles, which mirror male chauvinist arguments about the incapacity of women compared to men. 9. A historical materialist recognition and embrace of the experiences in the struggle against patriarchy and women's oppression in the socialist movements and socialist revolutions in Russia, China, and others, as well as within movements exercising dual power today. This stands against the rejection by many feminists of proletarian and socialist contributions to feminism, either because of anti communist propaganda or sectarian denialism. A very relevant example of this erasure by bourgeois feminism is the capture and erasure of proletarian women of the International Working Women's Day into the International Women's Day. Another example is the ignorance of the advanced nature of the practices and rules within existing people's armies, such as the new people's army having marriage between people of all genders since the late 1990s. Unquote. Party Building. The qualitative leap from Marxism-Leninism to Marxism-Leninism-Maoism came with a great deal of new lessons regarding the construction and maintenance of the party as well as its relation to various other political formations. From the experiences of the Chinese revolutions and the ongoing people's wars in places like Peru, Nepal, India, and the Philippines, we have learned the importance of the concentric construction of the three revolutionary weapons, the party, the United Front, and the People's Army the need for the Maoist party to be militarized and clandestine, and the concepts of two-line struggle, criticism and self-criticism, and rectification campaigns. We shall go on to inspect the three revolutionary weapons, what they are, and how to organize them. 3.8.1 The Party Maoism continues to uphold the most basic principles of the vanguard party which were initially theorized through Marxism-Leninism. It is the most advanced detachment of the working class, it must maintain deep ties to the non party masses, a theory which was advanced even deeper through the Maoist understanding of mass line discussed earlier. It follows the organizational principles of democratic centralism, and it is based on the development of advanced cadres. Here we see Maoism's continuity with Marxism Leninism. However, Maoism goes on to rupture with the orthodox understanding of Marxism Leninism in a few ways. 3.8.1.1 Concentric construction of the party. Firstly, as we shall discuss in sections to follow, Maoism holds that the party must be organized in tandem with the united front and a people's army which shall be under the party's political leadership. Specifically, we understand that these formations must be concentrically constructed. What does this mean? You can imagine three circles existing within one another, each getting larger and larger. The party at the center, followed by the people's army, and then the united front. We will hash out the details of these other formations later on. What is important here is to understand that each of these formations feed into the next. Members of the party must be members of the People's Army, who also must be members of the United Front. This is to prevent a reformist and revisionist method of construction wherein there is an erroneous line of division drawn between military work and non-military work and between party work and mass work, which would reduce the party to administrative bureaucrats in the class struggle. Leadership must be at the center, not at the top. 3.8.1.2 Militarization of the Party Secondly, Maoists understand the need for a militarized Communist Party. The militarized Communist Party is in opposition to the now common opportunist conceptions of Communist parties such as the Communist Party USA, Party of Communists USA, Revolutionary Communist Party, Party for Socialism and Liberation, etc., who loudly announce their existence and put their leaders on full display for the ruling class. Why do they do this? Simply put, they feel safe doing so. Why do they feel safe? This answer is similarly simple they have no concrete plans, nor preparations begun, to directly confront the armed bodies of the bourgeois state in a revolutionary struggle. This is precisely where the problem arises. A Communist Party, if it is truly a Communist Party, must primarily concern itself with these very issues. In short, the militarized Communist Party expresses that all members of the party must be militant, that the party must begin preparations for armed conflict with the state from the moment of its inception, and that the party must be a secret, underground political formation in order to protect its integrity and ensure that its tasks are being adequately fulfilled. 3.8.1.3, Two-Line Struggle Thirdly, Maoism upholds a process known as Two-Line Struggle. The simplest explanation of Two-Line Struggle is that it is the process through which the proletarian position on a particular question struggles against the bourgeois line. A way to conceptualize this is to think of Two-Line Struggle in terms of trajectory there are ideas, perspectives, methods, and tactics that will deliver the working class to power, and thus hold the trajectory of revolution. Similarly, there are ideas, perspectives, methods, and tactics that will inevitably reach dead ends, and allow bourgeois elements to either remain in, or regain power. Fundamentally there are two trajectories, two lines, and communist organizations must continuously struggle to find and remain on the right one, no matter how far away revolution may be from current organizing. This is a process which has always been practiced in communist organizations, but which was given a name and explanation which has deepened our understanding and practice surrounding it, in line with the Marxist theory of knowledge, by Mao Zedong. Historically, this has manifested in the debate between Lenin and Bukharin and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union regarding whether or not to expand the new economic policy, wherein the bourgeois line was represented by Bukharin who wanted to expand the policy for a longer period of time and believed in market socialism, and the proletarian line was represented by Lenin and Stalin, who understood that the policy should remain temporary and that it was a retreat away from socialism which could only be allowed to exist for a short time, lest the bourgeoisie completely regain political power in the country. It again manifested in revolutionary China between Mao and the Deng clique regarding productive forces theory, as we have already discussed at length. Another example would be in the Communist Party of the Philippines during the 90s over the question of urban warfare wherein the bourgeois line was represented by those adventurous insurrectionists who advocated for abandoning the protracted people's war in favor of urban insurrectionism, and the proletarian line was represented by Jose Maria Sison and his allies who understood that the basic conditions of the Philippines were still semi-feudal and that the majority of the masses were still rural peasants, meaning that they would have little to no mass base in the urban cities. 3.8.1.4 Criticism and self-criticism. Finally, the Maoist party upholds the process of criticism and self-criticism. We understand that everyone makes mistakes, and that mistakes can be rectified. No communist enters the struggle with universally correct ideas, no matter how much one may study theory or the conditions of their nation. Correct ideas come from struggle, and transformation of both the comrade and thus transformation of tactics and methods is a necessary and never-ending process for any revolutionary, both on the individual and organizational level. Errors in practice and thinking are inevitable, and often require transformation to be rectified. Criticism and self-criticism is the vehicle for this transformation, and demands the collective accountability required for such transformation to take place. The Communist Party of the Philippines explains: The revolutionary is always ready to criticize their own weaknesses and mistakes. They are open to criticisms, and whatever is correct and what is good for the people is always placed above everything else, they are always ready to remold themselves in order to continue serving the people. Criticism and self-criticism must be conducted regularly. It ensures that our work is always analyzed, continues to improve our work, maintains and further strengthens our unity, The practice of criticism and self-criticism is a practice that typically takes place between comrades in an organization, and is a crucial exercise in both maintaining the correct trajectory of revolutionary struggle as well as building and maintaining collective and democratic accountability in the completion of organizing objectives. Without criticism and self-criticism, organizations would devolve into a liberal order of political practice, allowing people to shirk responsibilities and make excuses for their errors, and thus allowing those errors to go unrectified. CSC is also the vehicle in which rank-and-file comrades are able to critique and question leadership, thus holding them accountable to the party or collective. Criticism can also come from other organizations, individual comrades outside the party, or the masses. When done principally and in service of two-line struggle, revolutionaries must curtail their own defensiveness and embrace criticism as a tool in which to correct themselves and strengthen their revolutionary practice. 3.8.2. The People's Army. The People's Army is the body of armed revolutionaries which shall be the principal force that directly combats the armed forces of the bourgeois state. This organizational form is absolutely necessary for the liberation of the people. As Mao said, quote, without a people's army the people have nothing. Unquote the party must begin preparing to form the People's Army as soon as it's founded. In the early stage, this will likely look like the formation of localized formations dealing with the defense of particular communities rather than a centralized, countrywide body. For more concrete examples of what this may look like, we recommend Urban Perspective by the Communist Party of India, Maoist. 3.8.3, The United Front. The United Front, UF, is the broadest political formation in the process of the class struggle the outward most circle in the concentric organization of the party and the revolution. In contrast to the two above organizational forms, the united front is an above-ground formation. It may or may not take on a formal structure, meaning that it can either be a declared political structure made up of many individuals and member organizations or simply a loose network of allied organizations. This is where the masses can take part in the class struggle in the millions via all different types of organizations. These types of organizations can range from explicitly Maoist revolutionary mass organizations to unions to feminist organizations to community educational groups to street organizations to self-defense groups to campus groups, revolutionary nationalist organizations, squatter groups, lawyers' guilds, unions, and everything in between. The United Front serves as the means for all of those politically advanced members of the masses involved in the revolutionary alliance, which in this country is the alliance of the proletariat, the lumpen proletariat, The lower stratum of the petty bourgeoisie, and the national bourgeoisie of the various internal colonies, can participate directly in the class struggle, as well as the means through which party members can directly participate in open and above-ground political work. The party takes part directly in the United Front through a process known as fractional work, wherein the party formation places members, who keep their political identities as CP members secret, into the above-ground organizations who are part of the United Front. From these positions the party is able to propagate its political line in the UF organizations, albeit often using a more toned-down version of what the party organs themselves would say, and to identify politically advanced members of the masses who may later be recruited to the party. 3.9. Protracted People's War. Maoism has elucidated the universal military strategy of the proletariat as Protracted People's War, PPW. The Revolutionary Maoist Coalition of Chicago has just recently published a full-length article defining and defending the universality of PPW and so we shall not get into a full defense of its universality here, but shall briefly quote its definition as we understand it. The universal characteristics of protracted people's war are as follows, 1. A militarized communist party, armed with the revolutionary ideology of Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, at the helm of both a united front and a people's army. 2. Deep connections with the masses so as to swim among them like fish and to serve them in such a way to draw them into the militarized Communist Party's orbit. 3. Centralization of strategy and decentralization of tactics. 4. First attacking dispersed and vulnerable enemy forces and then attacking more important and concentrated forces. 5. The core of protracted people's war, passing through the three strategic stages which are a the consolidation of forces and the strategic defensive, b. The strategic equilibrium, and c the strategic offensive. 6. The creation of base areas where dual power has been established which will at times have to be abandoned, especially during the strategic defensive stage when we must follow the principle of quote, the enemy attacks, we retreat, the enemy camps, we harass, the enemy tires, we attack, the enemy retreats, we pursue. Unquote. But which may be returned to at later points. 7. The ability to remain undefeated, only sent back to a previous strategic stage, as long as the Maoist Party and People's Army remain active and have not succumbed to opportunism slash revisionism. Unquote. This strategy has been successfully employed to seize state power in China and Vietnam, and is currently being employed in Peru, Nepal, India, Bangladesh, and the Philippines. It has not yet been successfully implemented in the Imperial Corps, but this is due mostly to the underdevelopment of revolutionary movements generally in the Imperial Corps, and not because of any inherent flaw in the strategy of PPW. We believe that given the existence of a genuine militarized Maoist party with a proper understanding of its country's conditions that this theory can be successful in the global centers as well. 3.10. Conclusion. Such is the theoretical development of the revolutionary science known as Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. We have dealt primarily with the universal aspects which make up this ideology in its three stages while attempting to place those aspects in the particular application to our own conditions in the so-called United States. There are, of course, more particular theories and analyzes which arise from these universal ones that deal with the unique conditions of whatever Communist Party is applying Maoism to their country. We shall continue to publish our political line on such particular manifestations regarding our country as we are able to refine them through investigation and study. In addition to this, it must be stated that the ideas and concepts laid out here are not regarded as revolutionary practice simply because they are the writing and opinions of prolific leaders. No, in reality, The relevancy of what is discussed in this document is the product of the dialectical development of revolutionary knowledge through struggle, analysis, and experimentation. The origin of each and every one of these concepts is based in the concrete struggle of the masses and revolutionaries in fighting to end their oppression. Because this document does not cover much of the key history behind these ideas and concepts, we greatly recommend reading the Marxism Leninism Maoism Basic Course by the CPI, Maoist, to deepen and expand your knowledge of our theory and its origins in history. In the meantime, we hope that this document will suffice in providing a broad overview of the Maoist political line of the Chicago formation of the Revolutionary Maoist Coalition, and of For the People, Chicago. Long live Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. Long live the international proletariat. All power to the people. This concludes, What is Marxism-Leninism-Maoism? By the Revolutionary Maoist Coalition, Chicago, and For the People, Chicago. This reading was edited for listening by the Zine Reader Collective a mass organization that aims to make the literary works of contemporary revolutionaries more accessible. This reading was the first document to be edited for the Zine Reader Collective. Thank you for listening.